And turn in your Bible, please, to Judges chapter 8, <clears throat> reading at verse 29. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let's hear the word of God. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abizites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal-berit their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the land of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done for Israel. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berit, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubel, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubel, was left. For he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together in old Beth Milo, and they, made, they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried out and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubel and his house and have done him 
as his deeds deserved. For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his son, 70 men, in one stone and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem because he is your relative. If you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out of Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and there lived because Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Zerubbabel, or Jerubel, sorry, might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way, and it was told to Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field, and they gathered the grapes from the vineyards and trod them, held a festival, and they went into the house of their God, and they ate and drank and reveled uh, uh, and reviled Abimelech. Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and who are we of Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubel, and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamar, the father of Shechem, but why would you serve him? With that his people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. And when Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, you go out by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then, in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now? You who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now, fight with them. Gaal went out to the head of a 
the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased them, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Aruma, and Zebul drove out Gal and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city. All that day he captured the city. He killed the people who were in it. He raised the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the tower, the house of Elberit. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalmon. He and all the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand, and cut down a bundle of brushwood, took it, laid it on his shoulder, and said to the men who were with him, What you've seen me do, you do. Hurry. So every one of them cut down his bundle, followed Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold in fire over them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. There was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the tower, to the door of the tower, to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, the armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his own home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubel. It's a long reading. I'm tired now. Just talk among yourselves and I'll go home. (laughs) This chapter, uh, long though it is, is a solemn lesson on the danger of God giving us what we ask for. Let's remind ourselves of the context. In a time of emergency, God has raised up Gideon whose work marks a turning point in the whole narrative of the book of Judges. We're clearly told this in verse 35, chapter 8, of all the good that Gideon had done for Israel. We also read in chapter 8, verse 28, that while he was alive, the Lord gave rest to Israel for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Now, now some people come to the story of the book of Judges and they think there's a pattern that's repeated right through the book. The pattern goes something like this. There's decline 
among the Israelites in their worship. There's danger of foreign powers invading or already invading, coming in and and, uh, tearing apart the land. Uh, There's danger. There's divine intervention in the form of a Savior that God sends. And then there's rest. In the case of Gideon, there was rest for 40 years. Now, it's true that that outline really covers every, every part of the book up until this eighth chapter. But this is the last time in the book of Judges that Israel will have rest. Israel will not get rest under any of the judges, some of whom are super judges like Samuel. Uh, sorry, Samson. I know you're really looking forward to us getting to Samson. But even under Samson, they gain no rest from their enemies. And when Gideon dies, we're told, this is significant in verse 33 of chapter 8, his action, just him being there, despite his many faults, and he does have many faults, he acts as a kind of restraint on the idolatry that had gripped the people. You remember one of his first actions was to demolish his own father's idol factory and worship spot and to cleanse it up so that people would worship the Lord their God. But as soon as Gideon died, we read, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berit their God. Baal Berit, the word Berit is a covenant. They made a kind of covenantal relationship between Israel and this foreign uh, pagan God, mimicking the covenant that God had made with Israel. The Berit, the covenant that God had established with his people. They were mimicking this, only this time they were making a covenant making their own promises towards, their own obligations towards this Baal, this made-up God. So what will happen next? Well, if we were following the pattern thus far, we would think, well, next God's going to raise up a savior, a, a judge, a deliverer. But this time, things have gone too far. And so, in fact, people are enabled or given the freedom themselves to raise up an anti-judge, an anti-savior, an anti-Christ. You know, you can see a real parallel between the story here in Judges 8-9 with the New Testament teaching about anti-Christ. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Thessalonians, calls him the man of lawlessness, In other words, there's a departure from the law of God, any love for the law of God. Life is no longer got any boundaries to the things that people can do. That's the days of Antichrist. And as Paul writes to the people in Thessalonica, he he talks about the fact that right now, and that means right now as well as right now then, there is a restraint. No matter how much sin or evil we see in the world, there is a restraint that is being put upon it. And Paul refers to this. He says, what is restraining him now will do so until he is out of the way 
the restraint is taken away, then the lawless one will be revealed. In this case, Gideon's presence, in spite of its faults, restrains the emergence of the man of lawlessness. And once his restraining presence is removed, as Paul says about the Antichrist, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs, and wonders with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. And what alerts us to the connection is not only the the removal of Gideon's restraining presence and the emergence of this anti-judge, but also the evil spirit that is mentioned later on in the third major section of the passage. So this ominous note then has been sounded in chapter 8. Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. I told you he was flawed. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son and called his name Abimelech. Now, that name means son of a king. And what it may do is it may indicate why he has this concubine in Shechem. It may very well have been a political move, a marriage of convenience, a way in which uh, Gideon keeps the people of Shechem at least uh, not rebelling against the other tribes of Israel. She, the wife, may have been a prominent royal figure, and uh, the, the marriage may have been a way of sealing the deal. We don't, we don't know, but that's certainly uh, a, a, a good guess. So now I want to look at then at this anti-judge. Under three points, I want to look at the rise, the surprise, and the demise of the anti-judge. I'll sell you these guys if you want to use these, this outline. The students can ask me later. Uh, so let's look at the rise of the anti-judge. We look at this at verses 1 to 6 of chapter 9. When we first meet him, we get an indication of his character. Unlike the judge deliverers we have looked at already, he is not one of them. He is a ruthless opportunist who defied the will of God, beguiled the men of Shechem, and slaughtered the sons of Gideon. First of all, he defied the will of God. None of the other judges had taken it upon themselves to be a judge. None of the other judges had taken the initiative in giving leadership to Israel. All of them honored the devolved form of government that God had instituted in Exodus, the book, and Deuteronomy for Israel at this time. God had specifically called each of the judges to their task. And his law ordained that in the future, when there would be a king, that that king should not be someone who had not been called anointed and appointed by the Lord to the office that he would hold. By suggesting that he could be king, he was violating the clear will of God. 
He did not have the character, the stature, the honor, the the prestige of a royal candidate. But in particular, he was not raised up by Yahweh or Jehovah, he who is by the Lord. He defied the the will of God. Then secondly, he beguiled the men of Shechem. All he did have was this family connection with Shechem through his mother's relatives. And he exploits the meaning of his name. My father is king. Although he was never intended to use it this way, certainly by by Gideon. Gideon had rejected the kingship. But he presents himself as a prince and a king in waiting. And in doing this, he directly contradicts his father's position when his father told Israel unequivocally, Jehovah, that is Yahweh, that is the one who is the Lord, is your king. So how does he proceed? Well, he creates a false narrative. You'll find this being done, by the way, all the time on Twitter. If you follow Twitter, you'll know what I'm referring to. He creates a false narrative. He says this in verse 2, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeruel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Now, as far as we can see, there's absolutely no hint, no question, no suggestion that the 70 sons of uh, Jeruel or Gideon were thinking or had thought or were contemplated even in the most remote way ever attempting to become king in Israel. And the idea that you might divide Israel into 70 mini-states over which these 70 men would rule had certainly not been suggested. So the, the silence tells us that this is a false narrative. But he uses this false narrative to argue that the rule of one is better than the dominion of many. Now, that has been a a view held uh, and rejected by people through history. Homer said, it is not good that many reign. There should be one ruler. Aristotle quotes that quotation from Homer that uh, in his metaphysics. I mean, there's, there's, there are good things about being, there being one ruler in the land. Uh, I, as some of you know, I was a Baptist minister for a while. And so I, I suppose I, I, I got to be the one ruler in the land for a little while. And there were advantages. I could make decisions and make them happen. I I didn't have to have long, convoluted meetings. Not that I'm suggesting, guys, (laughs) that we have long, convoluted meetings. But, but, you know, I could could act swiftly uh, in order to get things done. Then, of course, the Lord convicted me of my sin. And uh, I learned that uh, Presbyterial... Uh, worship or, or leadership is the, is the way to go, and so it has been, and I'm so grateful to my fellow, fellow elders here. But uh, the Bible, I think, warns against 
those who aspire to be able to lead without any checks and balances. But Abimelech doesn't uh, pause on the utility of solo rule. Rather, it's this familial bond. He uses that familial bond. He, He just kind of tells them, is it the 70 or the one? And remember, when you're thinking about that question, that I am your bone and your flesh. Very clever. He's suggesting that he will be king. And that if he was king because he was their bone and flesh, guess what? You would have priority treatment. You would get to the first front of the line everywhere because you could say that you're related to me. Your your wealth will increase. You'll have dignity. You'll have influence. You'll have the king himself on speed dial. You can get me any time. But there's also a lie wrapped up in this package of argument. These 70 were his paternal brothers. They were not looking to snatch the kingdom. Like their father, they had rejected the kingdom. They understood that. The 70 were his fraternal brothers. They were related to him as well. But, but he is speaking deceptively in order to get the favor and support by guile of the people of Shechem. Now, in all this argument, this argument of uh, Abinadab's should be tested not against popular opinion, not by its reasonableness or otherwise, but by the commandments of God. He was also using his argument to deceive the people. And like Antichrist's father, the devil, this anti-judge's father is the deceiver, the liar, and as we'll see, the murderer. He slaughtered the sons of Gideon, his own brothers, getting the money that he'd been given by Shechem to establish his kingdom. He hired some unprincipled men who were available to do anything for any, at any price. He sent them to Ophrah. And each brother is brought to a stone in the courtyard and is executed in the same place, one after the other, in the blood of their brothers. All but one who escaped. But the anti-judge doesn't know that. Having eliminated all his family, all the leaders of Shechem came together, it says, and all of Beth Milo, and they went and they made Abimelech king. That is a coronation that deserves to be consigned to ignominy. Abimelech's actions were driven by a thirst for personal power. His ruthlessness and ambition sought to remove any and all potential obstacles in his way. Power corrupts, said Lord Acton, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this becomes a feature of the future. The great German commentators, Kyle and Delich, say this. uh, This action of uh, the anti-judge is a bloody omen of the kingdom of the ten tribes of Israel that will later emerge, founded, by the way, at Shechem by the Ephraimite outcast Jeroboam 
in which one dynasty or dynasty overthrew another and generally sought to establish its power by exterminating the whole family of the previous dynasty. This is how Antichrist emerges. Well, then secondly, the surprise of the Antichrist, the Antijudge. The surprise comes in the form of this one son of Gideon who survived the pooch. His name, we're told, was Jotham. When he arises, everything's going well for Abinadab. The crowds are coming for the coronation and the after party. But opposite Shechem, there is a low outcrop of rock on Mount Gerizim. To this day, that outcrop of rock is called uh, Jotham's pulpit. It was from that outcrop of rock that this man who was imitating Joshua, Joshua who had proclaimed from Mount Gerizim to the assembly of Israel years before, this man, Jotham, now speaks to the Israel of his day. He assumes the role of a prophet. He delivers God's word, word to the anti-judge and to Israel. He does what other saviors, including our Savior, does. He speaks in parables. He tells a story. When you read this, you think of Jesus telling his stories. The story that he's telling is designed to waken people up and to convict consciences. In verse 7, Jotham tells us what the punchline of what he's doing is when he says this, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. God won't listen to you unless you listen to his word first. A lot of us have trouble getting God to hear us when we cry to him because we've ignored his word. Listen to me before, uh, before God listens to you. So he comes with the word of God, and he tells the story of the trees. Like Israel, the trees are looking for a king, but nobody wants a job. The olive, the fig, the vine trees are among the seven staples of the land of that day. Each one of them is invited to lead, but each one of them already has a day job. Each of them has a prestigious reputation, is a useful function. None of them is prepared to give that up simply to wave their branches like the royals do to the adoring populace. The olive tree was first to react to the position of ruler. After all, the, oil, the olive tree said, the oil that I produce is used to honor God and man. It's used to anoint priests and to feed the lamps that burn in the sanctuary. The fig tree, he rejected the honor because his fruit was the staple of the region. The vine tree also declined because the vine, the fruit of the vine, wine was used for both religious and secular purposes. It was, the wine was poured out as the law required on the altar, a bit of a waste, but not really, it was for God. It was poured out to celebrate God. And it was the main beverage in every home in Israel. So finally, the position is offered to the bramble. You see what he's doing here? 
He's down to these noble trees, and now he's down to the bramble. Brambles produced nothing of value. They were, they were ground-hugging bushes that just spread and spread and spread. Uh, you couldn't bow to them because you'd have to go down into the sand and, and try to get under them in order to, to bow to them. And because in the summer the brambles caught fire because they were so widely st- uh, spread out and so dry, the fire would move very quickly and would burn anything in its way. You get the message. Abimelech is the bramble. And Jotham's point was that they were in real trouble. Their king was a man who did not know what truth and integrity means. Truth and integrity, when they're absent from public life and public office, social disintegration is the inevitable result. Where truth and integrity are absent from church life, no one can trust the church to be Christian. Jothan raises the issue of truth and integrity in verse 16 and verse 19, words that signal our loyalty to God and his people. And he says they were absent. I can make a little caveat here. The Church of England bishops took a decision this past week. And I would say that that decision is not a decision that was made in truth and integrity and disqualifies them from office in the church. But tyrants everywhere, in the world or in the church, all have the same playbook. They will assemble their favorites. They will bring in their own choice people with them. They will eliminate, isolate, frustrate all opponents, all potential adversaries or obstacles. It happens to nations. It happens in churches. Generations of hard work go into sidelining genuine orthodox ministers, pastors, priests, cardinals, replacing them with people with theologically liberal and morally liberal positions. Happens, and we got very near it. We got very near it in the PCA, and we've been spared from that. The Roman church is very near it at this point, and other churches have already descended into the degradation of the ditch of hell. Gideon is a type of Christ in that he himself, Gideon and Christ, are seen as the olive tree and the fig tree and the vine. Jesus himself offered, uh, refused the offer of a kingdom by the Jews, remember? Because his rule was not going to be fleshly but spiritual, nor earthly but heavenly. He is the olive tree that pours forth spiritual anointing to gladden hearts. He is the true vine that satisfies us. He is the fig tree whose words are like sweet figs to our taste. So we have the rise and the surprise and now the demise of the anti-judge. 
I said the language of the Baal Barit that's mentioned is covenantal language. And uh, uh, Abimelech had sought to establish a covenant with the people of Shechem. Three years have passed, and now God intervenes. Chapter 9.23, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And what unfolds from that point is one dramatic, farcical, but deeply serious event. The key word is the word treachery. Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Treachery is the final breakdown of truth and integrity. The king and the populace had dealt treacherously with Gideon and his family. And now the people are going to deal treacherously with Abimelech. The city hired robbers, stationed them in the main highways, main trade routes, to hurt the king's income streams. This man, Gaal, moves into town, gains popularity, stirs up the people against the king, challenges the people's loyalty to the king. The king's relatives, one Zebu, is able to nip the rebellion in the bud, but he sends one note to uh, Abimelech, another note to these usurpers, Gaal, He's playing one against the other. And as he plays one against the other, he becomes a kind of human agent of the evil spirit that God has sent. And in the end, the anti-judge finds retribution. It comes in the form of an unnamed woman who has climbed into the tower carrying the top uh, millstone, the upper millstone. My my view is millstones were made out of rock. I don't know how she did that. But she was some remarkable person, let me tell you. She had carried that thing up, and not only had she the strength to carry it up, she could aim it. And she crushed the head of Abimelech, who thought he'd try and get in the way of the record by telling his man to kill, to put his sword through him so that he didn't die by a woman. But you read it in the Bible. It's in there. He died by the hand of an unnamed woman. And that reminds us, of course, that the devil is always going to be crushed ultimately. The promise to the woman in the garden, remember, to Mary, uh, to Eve rather, in the garden was that Satan head would be crushed by one of her offspring. And ultimately, Jesus is the offspring who crushes the Antichrist. You see, God sees and God judges. At the end, Antichrist will fall just as this anti-judge falls. In the end, God, who is a God of justice, will avenge all the wrongs that have been done His people. All the injustices that have come your way or mine. A greater than Jotham took our curse, quenched the fire of wrath in order to make us 
another kind of tree, an oak of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. These messy stories in the Bible apply so much, don't they, to the history of the world since then and to what goes on in our world today. And the only hope we have for the world is to say to the world, beware, there will arise an antichrist and he'll be just like this guy. But we know the one who will finally defeat not only Antichrist, but every power that rises itself up against truth, integrity, and God. Let's pray. Lord, as we read this story, it's, it's really not pleasant reading. But the lesson of it is that you are involved. You give people, sometimes you give them free reign, and this is what happens when you give them free reign. We learn from the story why you don't do that too often. Because when you let us do what's in our hearts to do, we get into personal trouble. We pray that you would refine our hearts and that you, Lord, keep and protect your people wherever they are, and that you would hasten the day when Jesus comes to make all these wrongs right. We pray in his strong name. Amen.